Thank you for tuning in with us at Bayou City Fellowship Spring Branch, a community that's radically focused on Jesus. There are 66 books in the Bible, but to understand sin and redemption through Jesus, you must start from the first book, where God breathed life and set the stage for the unfolding story of His living word. Join us as we go through the book of Genesis in this sermon series titled, Grace Upon Grace. Well, good morning, guys. My name is Joel. I'm the community groups pastor here. Uh, I have a fun fact for you today as we continue on our study of Genesis. Not only is our country, uh, uh, not only have we amassed over our lifespan as a nation 46 presidents, we also have one emperor. Did you know that? We have, there is one and only one emperor of the United States of America. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. His name is Joshua Abraham Norton. He is the one and only emperor. He is the one and only self-proclaimed emperor of the United States of America. He was born in 1818 to Jewish parents. He immigrated here from Cape Town, South Africa in about 1846. Uh, He brought a little nest egg with him and he cultivated that little nest egg, that little financial sum to the tune of about $250,000 in the mid 1800s. That's a whole bunch of money. I'd love to have that sum of money in the 2020s. But hey, uh, you know, who's, 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 you know, complaining? Uh, He brought that up. He was very prosperous. Uh, He was a man of great means and influence in the 1840s in San Francisco, California. California, uh, but he got into some bad business deals. And over between 1849 and about 1856, he eventually had to declare bankruptcy. Uh, now, at that point, maybe many of us would have just kind of cut our losses and just sought to live out our days, uh, you know, just in quietness and, you know, in our communities and whatnot. That is not what Joshua Abraham Norton did. He went underground for a few years and came back up the next appearance of Emperor Norton was in September of 1859. He took out an ad in the San Francisco Daily News Bulletin, and it read something like this. I, Joshua Norton, declare and proclaim myself emperor of these United States of America. What a deal, man. And in virtue of the authority thereby vested in me, I do hereby order and direct the representatives of the different states of the union to assemble and to make such alterations in the existing laws of our union as may ameliorate the evils under which this country is laboring. Man, with that leadership, then I don't know what is, right? So over the course of his 20-plus year reign, okay, scare quotes intended, he advocated for lots of political reforms. He wanted to entirely disband the entire congressional branch of the government. That's quite quite a move there. And establish a monarchy. I'll give you three guesses who that monarch was, uh, who he wanted that monarch to be. Two of those guesses do not count. But at his funeral, when he died in 1880, Although 10,000 people in that city came to view the emperor in state, when it came time for the graveside memorial, there were less than 30 people in attendance. See, Emperor Norton's pride had destroyed his sense of reality, uh, the real facts on the ground around him, and left him when they uh, examined his belongings, his his 
home, left him with $6 to his name and more gawkers than mourners in his death. Pride did that to Emperor Norton, and I want to suggest to you this morning that pride wants to destroy each one of us as well. So we're going to pick up in Genesis 4. You can turn there in your Bibles. Last week, we closed out our time in Genesis 3 with a promise from God that although mankind had fallen out of intimacy with God and they were going to be cast out from the garden, that God promised that the seed of the woman, an offspring of the woman, would come and would deliver God's people. His creation would restore them to right relationship with their creator. Theologians use a fancy word for this, call it the proto-euangelion. That simply means proto-first, Mention of the gospel, euangelion is the Greek word for gospel or good news. So in Genesis 3, 15, we have the first mention of God's promise to send a deliverer, a Messiah, Savior, and reconcile all of creation to himself. But before we jump ahead, see, we have the benefit of having the whole story cover to cover, right? But before we jump ahead to the name of that Messiah, Jesus, and Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, I want us to notice today that in this chapter, Genesis 4, the very next few verses that we've got, there is in fact a off, an offspring, a seed born to Adam and Eve. And so in the logic of the story, in the logic of the account, we are meant to say to ourselves, wow. Dad gum, that was fast, you know, wasn't it? God just getting right down to business, you know, where we're gonna be, there's gonna be an offspring born to the woman, and here he is. Okay, fantastic. Very short Bible at that at that point. Um, but we figure out quickly, don't we, that Cain is not the man for the job. Cain's pride in this story will reach out its tentacles to destroy every good thing in his life. And in our lives today, there is nothing different about that. Pride is still reaching out its arms to destroy every good thing in your life as well. So I want to read, we're going to read just a section at a time because we do have a long chapter today. I'm going to start in verses one through seven of chapter four. Now the man was intimate with his wife Eve and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. She said, I have had a male child with the Lord's help. She also gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel became a shepherd of flocks, but Cain worked the ground. In the course of time, Cain presented some of the land's produce as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also presented an offering, some of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. The Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but He did not have regard for Cain and his offering. Cain was furious and he looked despondent. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you furious? And why do you look despondent? If you do what is right, won't you be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Pride will destroy our relationship with the Lord. 
Now you read this account and do you ever feel as though God's displeasure with Cain's sacrifice kind of comes out of nowhere a little bit, doesn't it? Like you read this and in the text, it just seems so random. Like there's something that I'm supposed to infer here. Like that is an awfully strong, like he was furious. He was, his face was fallen and God rejected his offering. He just go, what's the big deal? What goes on? And so I think there's a strong case uh, for us to just sit in this story, to allow it to work its way into our heart and mind. But as we do that, I think several clues are going to come out for us as to why it was that Cain was rejected. Look first in verse two. It says, Abel became a shepherd of flocks, but Cain worked the ground. Now, there's multiple times in chapter four where the writer, the author is going to draw these disjunctives, these distinctions between Cain and Abel. And so Abel's a shepherd. And don't jump to like good shepherd or anything like that. It's not, it's not quite that. It's just Abel's a shepherd, Cain, but Cain worked the ground. And you go, well, that seems like not such a big deal. What's so bad about working the ground? But what is it that we know in just three chapters so far about the ground? What happens to the ground in chapter three? It was cursed. And so we've got Abel is this shepherd, but Cain's name is already being associated with something that was just cursed. Now there's nothing wrong with raising produce, fruits, veggies, wheat, whatever. Okay, guys. But, uh, but the idea is that that dimension of creation has been cursed and Cain is already kind of entangling himself with that. We read on in verse three, we see that Cain presented some of the land's produce as an offering to the Lord. But what does it not say? We've already got this idea of first fruits. Cain doesn't present the first fruits, but it does say that Abel presents the firstborn, the fat portions of the flock, always a positive connotation associated with sacrifice and offering and worship of Yahweh in his temple, right, throughout the Bible. And so this is what Abel's bringing, the best of the best, the cream of the crop, okay, or the flock, I guess. But even before that, there is this clue in verse one that Cain's sin is pride in this chapter, and it actually comes on the lips of his mama. What does Eve say in verse one? She conceived and gave birth to Cain and said, I've had a child with the Lord's help. Okay. Literally in the Hebrew, the phrase is literally with the Lord. And so in our English translations, we have to make some sense of what, what on earth is going on? Why in the world would Eve say with the Lord's Help. What does that even mean? Like, isn't it with Adam's help? Okay, anybody? Uh, you know, like an anatomy, physiology lesson. In fact, chapter four even breaks up this section. Verse one, the man was intimate with his wife Eve and she conceived and gave birth. Verse 17, Cain was intimate with his wife and she conceived and gave birth. And verse 25 again, Adam was intimate with his wife again and she gave birth to a son. And so it's even shown to us the very divisions of this chapter are creation of life from man and woman. And so why does Eve say, with the help of the Lord, with the Lord, okay? What Eve is suggesting here, she seems to be saying, God might've made the first man, but I made the second man. 
God and I, we're kind of with one another in this whole man-making thing, aren't we? Like, we're pretty similar. I've made a child with the Lord. Here's the Lord making a man over here. Here's me making a man over here. We're pretty similar, aren't we? There's a, a basketball story, a, a Michael Jordan story from a game I heard this just the other day, uh, March 28th of 1990, Jordan's Bulls were playing the Cleveland Cavaliers, Steve Kerr's Cleveland Cavaliers, and the Bulls were looking for a playoff spot, and it was a close game, and it was a 137, 134, something like that, overtime victory, and Jordan absolutely went off for 69 points in an overtime win. Now, his teammate, Stacy King, was also in the game. He played 17 minutes, went 0 for 4 from the field, hit one free throw, and had more personal fouls than points. And at the end of his, near the end of his playing career, Stacy King is now a commentator, mostly for the Bulls, but does sports commentating, basketball commentating. Another reporter asked him, Stacy, what was the highlight of your career? And King responded, the night that Michael Jordan and I combined for 70 points against the Cleveland Cavaliers. Eve, what was the highlight of your career? That time the Lord and I made the first two men on the planet. Eve, on paper, she knew that it was God alone who gives and sustains life. She was the recipient of that herself wasn't she? But in this moment, in pride, she forgot that. Said, really, Yahweh and I are a lot alike in this whole creating life thing, aren't we? But you and I are very similar. We're no different than that, are we? On paper, we know that it's God alone who is blessing us, going before us, equipping us with all of the skills and abilities by which we do anything of merit or accomplishment in our lives. But he kind of chose me for a reason, didn't he? I mean, like, I'm pretty great, aren't I? I mean, y'all, we're just reading Ephesians 2.10, right? We are God's masterpiece. I mean, Created in his image, but what a striking image it is. Am I right? Cain, this trait seems to be genetic. Cain was willing to do what God required of him. He brought his offering. But didn't God know his resume, his pedigree? Didn't he know his mom and dad? God, I, I'm number one in sales. I'm the top of my class, firstborn of my parents. Man, I got things to do, places to be. Do you really require the first fruits? I mean, do I have to comb through all of those apples and oranges to get the very best of the best? Surely you understand. So a little bit of self-diagnosis here in the, in the imagination of this story, we can see Cain and Abel coming to almost to the door of Eden. They have been cast out of the Garden of Eden, but they are still in the region of Eden. And it's almost as if the altar is set up outside. And Cain and Abel are bringing forward their offerings. And, 
And it is this idea of coming into the presence of God and offering a sacrifice of praise and worship to him. And so let's think about this for you and I. By analogy, by extension, when you and I bring our offering of praise and worship to God, think Sunday gathering, think this room this very morning. What's the posture of our hearts? How has pride crept in to your approach, to your bringing your worship to God in his gathered congregation, his assembly, his sanctuary and house? And look, I am not here talking about like being on time or not on time, okay? Look, we had a whole lot of rain today and I saw some of you this very morning with two, three, four kids, and you're just trying to get them out of all the car seats, and you were making a calculated decision in that moment. I want my children to have a positive experience at church, and punctuality is gonna have to take a back seat. Amen, right? You understand? I understand that. Blessings upon you, okay? I am also not talking, the flip side was my family, like my parents, it was 8.53 and their, the car was in the driveway, the horn was a honking and if you weren't there, man, if we, you were gonna be on time to church or you were hitchhiking to church, okay? And we might have been there, we might have been punctual, but we might have wanted to go a little Cain and Abel on one another by the time we got to that car. You understand what I'm saying? So I am not talking about on time or not on time. The real question is the condition of our hearts this morning and any morning. Is worship a convenient tack on to your life that is otherwise going pretty great? It's a bonus, you know, it's the icing on the cake. But really, I'm pretty happy with the way things are. And, you know, I, 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 of course, I want God to bless me. And if I can get there on Sunday to receive that blessing, then fine. You know? Is our time so important and so valuable that as soon as I pray us out of this sermon, that you are out the back door because you got places to be, things to do? Or is it more important to Come forward and respond to God, to engage with God in prayer, asking him to shape and transform your heart to respond to the word that we've heard today. Look, I am not suggesting, because I think this could easily go down this road, I'm not suggesting that outward actions equal inward transformation. Isaiah 29, 13 The people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. So that's not it. But I am burdened by the fact that many of us are Johnny on the spot in every other area of our lives except how we come to God. Yeah, meetings at nine o'clock, I'm gonna be there at eight. 55, Lombardi time. Early is on time, on time is late, late is unacceptable. Got the sports ball game all the way across town during rush hour traffic, don't you worry about it. I have already accounted for it. I told Waze when to to let me know when to get out the door so I'd be there on time. I parked at a Starbucks across the street an hour and a half early to get some work done just so I could make it there in a timely fashion. 
but church and morning quiet time and engaging with God in prayer. I mean, we'll see what happens, but you know, it's busy out there, don't you know? I think one of the things that we tend to emphasize in this subject and similar ones is that God is the essence of the perfection of truth, beauty, and goodness, and love, and that to come into his presence, to, uh, to uh, not come into his presence, is to miss out on the purest love and relationship and belonging that we could ever receive. And that is true. But we also need to be reminded what God says to Cain in verse seven. Cain, if you do not do what is right, what you know to do, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you. It wants to devour you, but you must rule over it. We're not making a minor miss here if we don't root out pride in our lives. It is a denial of our dependence on God for sanctification, for humility, for transformation and growth. But pride does not just destroy our relationship with God. Pride also destroys our relationship with others. Let's read in verse eight through 16. Look at this. Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's guardian? Then he said, what have you done? Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. So now you are cursed, alienated from the ground that opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood you have shed. If you work the ground, it will never again give you its yield. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. But Cain answered the Lord, my punishment is too great to bear. Since you are banishing me today from the face of the earth and I must hide from your presence and become a restless wanderer on the earth, whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord replied to him, in that case, whoever kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. And he placed a mark on Cain so that whoever found him would not kill him. And Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Genesis 4 represents a progression in many ways from chapter 3. Adam and Eve were caught off guard in their sin. They had to be coaxed, prodded. Cain knowingly plots his brother's death. Hey, Abel, let's go out to the field. I, uh, I got something for you. Eve had to be persuaded to sin by Satan, the, by the serpent himself. Cain could not be persuaded not to sin, even by God himself. Well, Cain, if you just do what's right, you know you will be accepted. 
Cain, it is within your power to do what is right, to come into relationship with me. Won't you do that? Nah. Adam and Eve, they quietly accept their punishment in chapter three. There's no, uh, there's no illusion or insinuation that they fight it or are complaining to God. Cain, his, his loud protest is that he's being treated unfairly. And there's this sick irony that his greatest concern is that what might happen to him is exactly what he did to his own brother. Can you imagine if you turned me loose on the face of the whole earth, I might die. Isn't that interesting, Cain? So Cain asked this famous question, Am I my brother's keeper? And if we actually pay close attention to chapter four, I want you to see this seven times Abel is called a brother to Cain. In verse two, she also gave birth to his brother Abel. In verse eight, Cain said to his brother Abel, Cain attacked his brother Abel. Twice again in verse nine, where is your brother Abel? Am I my brother's guardian? Again in verse 10, your brother's blood cries out to me. And one more time in verse 11, alienated from the ground that opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood. So Cain says, am I my brother's keeper? Cain is never referred to in the story as a brother to Abel. That question, am I my brother's keeper or guardian, that word is the exact same word that was used for Adam and Eve in chapter two. Their responsibility was to tend and keep the garden. They were to care for the garden, to protect the garden, to cause everything in the garden to flourish and to make much of it. And then Cain comes in and says, am I supposed to, are you expecting me to protect and care for my brother? Am I supposed to care for him, to cause him to flourish and to make much of him as a, as a person? And God's like, yeah, that was kind of the idea. And over and over and over again, Abel is identified as one who fulfilled that responsibility and never is Cain identified as a brother. So God's answer, am I my brother's keeper? Well, you certainly should have been but you have not cashed that check. You have not fulfilled that obligation. The question for us now is, are we our brother or sister's keeper? You know, every couple of months, one of these articles goes out uh, on, you know, like a a news feed or in the, you know, uh, the kind of ads on the side or something. It's uh, there's some, country somewhere else in the world that is developing some kind of social credit system. You're familiar with something like this, a way of rewarding approved of behaviors and punishing uh, non-approved or dissenting behaviors. And it's always met with a great deal of fear mongering and scorn, especially in the U.S. Oh, I can't believe they would do something like that. Can you imagine a world in which we would give our thumbs up and thumbs down to people's behaviors? And I'm just like, yes, that's our culture. Every day, someone just digitized it. Someone just institutionalized it. We know this in our 
in our fickle, fallen hearts and minds that we give our thumbs up and thumbs down approval of one another all of the time. If you have Instagram, you do this on a regular basis, right? And I'm not knocking social media as such. I'm just saying that it's in our bloodstream, our inflated senses of pride that we are approving of and disapproving of one another's behaviors. We are very comfortable leaving our own brothers and sisters on the outside of friend groups or social circles or just withholding approval from somebody on the basis of the social capital that that would give or retract from us. And it's pride and it's sin and we need to do business with it. We're not tending to our brothers and sisters in that way. And so look, maybe this morning you are, we're beginning to see together how pride is snaking its way into our relationship with the Lord, into our relationship with one another. And if we stopped here, if we just left it there, this would just be a kind of do better sermon. Be good for goodness sake, right? But we're told At the end of Cain's story, that from the very beginning, that Yahweh is a God of mercy and compassion, and that only the mercy of God can cover and protect the destructiveness of pride in our lives. Let's finish reading. I am going to read, I'm going to reread 15 and 16, and we're going to jump. Uh, the genealogy, we're gonna close out in 25 and 26. I just wanna make us aware. Then the Lord replied to him, in that case, whoever kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. And he placed a mark on Cain so that whoever found him would not kill him. Then Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Jump down to 25. Adam was intimate with his wife again and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth. For she said, and notice the change of heart, God has given me another offspring in place of Abel since Cain killed him. A son was born to Seth also, and he named him Enosh. At that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. God promises to mark Cain so that no one will return murder for murder and kill him in return. And this is actually the second time that this has happened. In Adam and Eve's rebellion against God and they're abandoning God's way and choosing their own way, God clothes them. He provides clothing for them. He covers their shame, covers their rebellion, provides for them in their worst moment. And here in chapter four, he provides protection even for Cain, even in the face of the unspeakable evil that he has done. And at the end of the chapter, he even provides another offspring to Adam and Eve, someone who will preserve what we know to be the line, the lineage of Jesus Christ himself. So from the very beginning, we are being conditioned, our hearts are being prepared for the day in which God will send his own son whose blood 
will be the thing that covers all of our sin and our rebellion, pride or otherwise. For all those that trust in Jesus for our salvation, their sin, our sin, is now hidden from God's sight. Paul picks up this idea in Galatians 3, verses 26 and 27. Look at this with me really quickly. For through faith, you are all sons of God in Christ Jesus. For those of you who were baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ. It's God's mercy to do that for us. So maybe you have never murdered a sibling. I certainly hope not. Maybe you've never even declared yourself the emperor of the United States of America. That would be a little bit bizarre. Let me know if you have. But surely you see the destructive effort, the destructive effects of pride in your own life. The bad news is here in chapter four, verse six and seven, that sin is crouching at your door. And it wants to devour you today. Pride wants to eat your lunch today. The good news is that the mercy of God is there, even in the progression of sin. And we skipped over in 17 through 24, but it just goes from bad to worse in Cain's line. It began with a murderer and it ends in 23 and 24 with another murderer, Lamech. But the grace of God is still there to provide cover and restoration from the sin that so easily entangles us. So today, throw yourself at the grace and mercy of God. You know, there's an old saying, I should have looked it up, the, one of the, I believe it was a reformer, don't quote me on that, but, but for the grace of God, there go I. So I just encourage you, in our relationships with one another, and our friends, coworkers, neighbors, family members, you will feel that impulse of pride this sometime this week. Say, oh my gosh, I can't believe that person said that thing, did that thing, responded in that way. Can you imagine being the kind of people who would do such a thing? Pause right there. But for the grace of God, there go I except for God's restraining mercy and cover on my life, how different would I end up? Throw yourself on his grace, his mercy. Find cover from the pride and sin that so easily entangles us, that seeks to devour us. Let's pray. Jesus, we are truly desperate for your help in this area. We forget so quickly we're nothing, no different than Eve. Look at all that I have accomplished. Yeah, with your help. I pray that you would heal us of the pride that wraps its way around our hearts and minds. Jesus, humble us, be gracious to us. You set an example for us. You humbled yourself to the very point of death, even death on a cross.
And so if we are to follow you, we ought to have that same kind of humility ourselves. Help us as we come before you this morning, every morning in our quiet times of scripture and prayer. We gather together in community groups, discipleship groups. Help us to bring appropriate worship to you, Father. You are great, so greatly to be praised. Remind us of that today. We ask all these things in your son's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's message. We hope that you feel encouraged. To stay up to date with our current sermon series, you can subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. If you would like to find more ways to get involved with the Bayou City family, visit us online at bayoucityfellowship.com or download the Bayou City Fellowship Spring Branch app to find community in the body of Christ.